0: And we get into the Word of God now tonight, and I would invite you to take your Bibles and open, if you will, please, to the Gospel of Matthew chapter 19. We, we, we were in Matthew 19 last week, and I want to continue on in here. Jesus was dealing with an issue of marriage, and I want to continue on with what the Lord says. In this passage, Jesus is going to instruct us on a very controversial topic, the topic of divorce. Now, why does our Lord, what does our Lord say about this? This is the question that we want to deal with. And let me just give you some preliminary thoughts. First of all, Jesus is not trying to put anybody on a guilt trip about divorce. I think whenever this topic is addressed, it has a tendency to cause some to be very uncomfortable because we know that divorce has touched the lives of many, many people. And I have absolutely no desire to heap up any guilt or condemnation on those who have been traumatized and wounded and, and, and have been, had broken hearts over this issue of divorce. In fact, what I want you to know is that there's life after divorce, and the grace of God can overcome all things. You might be a victim of divorce. You may be that you had a spouse that has crushed you and broken you and left you. This not, it's not something that you wanted. You're divorced not by your own choice. It was out of your control, or perhaps before you became a Christian, uh, you. uh, divorced and now if you had to do it all over again you wouldn't do that but it's in the past just remember what the scripture says if any man be in Christ he is a new creature old things are passed away behold all things become new or it may be that you made a mistake in divorcing in the past as a Christian perhaps because you didn't know the scripture perhaps because you were not mature in Christ you can't undo the past but you can learn from your mistakes and just remember there is forgiveness with God and There is His grace that covers it. Just go forward from here on and obey God and put Him first. Just remember the promise of the Old Testament that God is able to make up the years that the locust has eaten. And the reason I say this is because it seems like in certain circles in the church in America, you could be forgiven for every sin, it seems like, except the sin of divorce. But I want you to know that there's life after divorce, There's no such thing as a second-class citizen in the kingdom of God. We're all sinners. We've all fallen short. We are all in need of God's grace in our life. We all come from a dysfunctional family, all of us. There's not a person here that is any better than any of us. We are all children of Adam, and we all suffer from the same problem of sin. Now, we already saw here where Jesus is seeking to uphold the biblical standard of marriage, And we saw this here, and now he's going to talk about this issue of divorce because he's questioned about it. And let me just say that in going into this, there are traditionally four different views on this issue of marriage and divorce. First of all, there are some who hold to the position of no divorce, no remarriage, for no reason, no circumstance whatsoever, no divorce at all. And then there's another position that says divorce, but no remarriage. If you get a divorce uh, under any circumstance, there certainly can be no remarriage after that. And then there's a third position that says divorce and remarriage under any circumstance for anything. And they offer a variety of circumstances. And then there's another position that says divorce and remarriage under a limited circumstance. Those are the four basic traditional views about this subject. My question is, what does the Bible say about it? What does Jesus say about it? And, beloved, just know this. As a pastor, I want to be faithful to the Scripture. I want to tell you what the Scripture says. I'm not giving you my opinion. I want to give you what God says about this issue. And so it really doesn't matter what I think. It only matters what God thinks on this. And we need to make sure that we're not putting our standards above God's nor below what God says. We need to enforce exactly what the Lord says. And so here in Matthew 19, Jesus is going to deal with, with this issue. Now remember the context of this. Jesus had just traveled down from the northern region. He's on his final pilgrimage into Jerusalem. Uh, as he comes down from the north and he comes to the coast of Judea and Perea, he's met up with crowds. Uh, the Bible says that Jesus meets these people and he heals them. In verse number two of Matthew 19, a great multitudes followed him and he healed them there. In Mark's account, it says he also taught them. He was constantly teaching them as well. He's about 30 days from the cross. He's going to die on the cross. And the great multitudes are there with him, but also there in the crowds are the Pharisees in verse number three. And the Pharisees also came unto him, tempting him and saying unto him, is it lawful for a man to put away his wife for every cause? And the key phrase there is Every cause. Now, this is a hot-button issue, not only in our day today, but uh, especially in Jesus' day with the Jews at that time. There was a lot of controversy swirling around about this, and this is exactly what the Pharisees wanted to do. They wanted to pull Jesus in on this controversy. And the debate was focused on a meaning of an Old Testament verse, Deuteronomy 24, 1, And let me just read you that verse, when a man has taken a wife and married her, and it come to pass that she find no favor in his eyes, because he has found some uncleanness in her, then let him write her a bill of divorcement and give it in her hand and send her out of his house. Now, the controversy is how that verse there is interpreted. There are two predominating views held by rabbis at that time. First of all, there's the extremely conservative view. This was held by a rabbi, a very famous rabbi in Jesus' day, named Rabbi Shema, and he taught that divorce was never permissible. He held to the letter of the law. He had a very narrow, hard-line view, and that view was very unpopular among the Jews in Jesus' day. But then there was on the other side of this, the other extreme was uh, held A view held by a rabbi named Rabbi Hillel, and he held the total opposite view. He interpreted the word uncleanness in Deuteronomy 24.1, if he finds some uncleanness in her, talking about the wife. He said that he, he may divorce her for anything. That word uncleanness to him meant anything that the, that, the, that the husband felt was wrong. And so according to him, he may divorce her even if she spoiled a dish for him burning the bread, or putting too much salt on the food. He also said a man could divorce his wife for things such as letting her hair down in public, talking to other men, speaking ill of her mother-in-law. Some of you, some of you look guilty out there. Um, if she was infertile and couldn't bear children, any of those things. The esteemed Rabbi Aqaba who belonged to the Hillel school of thought, he later added on another one. He said this, even if he found another fairer than she, he could divorce his wife. So a man could divorce his wife for the most superficial, silly reason there is. Now needless to say, this was the popular view among Jesus' day, and this was the one that was embraced by most men of the day, and the view that was embraced by the Pharisees. Now, the Pharisees had already heard Jesus mention something about divorce. They remember what he said in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 5. They thought that maybe Jesus took this hardline view, and they wanted to really impale Jesus on the horns of a dilemma, and so that's why they even came and asked him this question. Uh, They wanted to turn the crowd against Jesus because he was gaining in popularity, And there's another thing to think about here. The Pharisees also knew very well where they were at that moment. They were in a region called Perea. This was under the rule of Herod Antipas. Who was he? He was the son of Herod the Great. He was the Herod that put John the Baptist to death. Why did he put John the Baptist to death? Because John the Baptist uh, condemned him for his divorce, or for him luring away his brother's wife, divorcing his wife, and remarrying his brother's wife. Uh, he seduced his brother Philip's wife, and she divorced him, and she married Herod Antipas, and John the Baptist came preaching about that. And as a result, Herod put him in jail and then had his head cut off. And so they come asking Jesus this question, hoping that you know, Jesus would uh, uh, endanger himself with his answer and that Herod would do the same thing to Jesus that he did to John the Baptist. And so they were, they were trying to tempt Jesus. That's why it says in verse 3, they came unto him, tempting him. Now, in response to the question that they asked Jesus, what he does is he doesn't line up with either school. He doesn't go back to any rabbinical tradition. And I, we, we looked at this last week, if you were with me, what does Jesus do? He goes all the way back to the beginning of the Old Testament, and he just simply explains and emphasizes God's design for marriage. He talks about the creation of marriage. And we don't have to belabor this because we already dealt with it last week. He quotes from Genesis 1, 27. He talks about the participants of marriage, male and female that God created. A marriage is between a man and a woman. He talks about the partnership of marriage. It's not good for man to be alone. And the gift that God gave to Adam was a woman. And so womanhood was one of the greatest gifts that God ever gave man. He talked about the pattern of marriage, that it's a man and a woman for all of life. And then he talked about also the priority of marriage, that, you know, let a man leave his father and mother and then cleave unto his wife. That's the product of marriage, a strong bond of cleaving together. And he talked about the permanence of marriage in verse 6 when he said, Wherefore, what God has joined together, let not man put asunder. But now we're going to move on because Jesus now is going to clear up some confusion on this issue of divorce. Look at verse number um, verse number seven. Then they said unto him, "Why did Moses then command to give a writing of divorcement and to put her away? Now again, the men in Jesus day sought to justify divorce by using the Old Testament law, just like people do today by twisting the scripture. And they knew that Jesus uh, used Deuteronomy twenty four one to four to say that a man um, and excuse me Jesus knew that they used deuteronomy twenty four one to four to say that a man could get a divorce, and that 's why they 're asking the question in verse seven, why did Moses then command to write a, a writing of divorce and to put her away and so they 're saying jesus, you don 't agree with Moses. Moses in the Old Testament commanded a divorce and for a man to put his wife away for Uncleanness. They were trying to put Jesus against Moses. Now, the key thing to understand in verse number seven is the word command. Notice where they said that in verse seven. Why did Moses then command to give a writing of divorce? Well, there are several things I want you to notice. In fact, why don't you go back to Deuteronomy 24 and let's look at it. Hold your place in Matthew 19. We're going to come back. But let's look at Deuteronomy 24 and look at verses 1 to 4, the, the very verse that they're referring to. And the question I want you to ask yourself as you're looking at this is this. Is this a command from Moses? Is it a command? That's what the Pharisees said. Look at verse 1. When a man had taken a wife and married her and it come to pass that she find no favor in his eyes because he had found some uncleanness in her, then let him write a, her a bill of divorcement, and give it in her hand, and send her out of his house. And when she is departed out of his house, she may go and be another man's wife. And if the latter husband hate her and write her a bill of divorcement, and give it in her hand, and send her out of his house, or if the latter husband die, which took her to be his wife, her former husband, which sent her away, may not take her again to be his wife. After that, she is defiled. Now, what I want you to notice about this section here is that there's only one command in here, and it's not with reference to divorce. Verses 1 to 3 are what we could call, these are what Hebrew scholars call protasis clauses, or we could say conditional clauses, or to even simplify it even more, these are if clauses, If if this happens, if this happens, if this happens. So you have a series of if clauses, if this happens, if this happens, if, 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 if. These are not commands. These are clauses. So we could translate it like this. If a man has taken a wife, and if it come to pass that he find, uh, she find no favor in his eyes, and he find someone in cleanness his heart, and if he write her a bill of divorcement and give it in her hand, if when she is departed out of his house, she may go and be another man's, and if the latter husband hate her and write her a bill of divorcement, or, and if the latter husband die, which he took to be his wife, all of those are if, if, if clauses. Now, here's the main clause, and here's where we come to the command in verse number four, where it says this, her former husband, which sent her, here's the command, may not take her again to wife. That's the only command in this whole passage here. So this is not a command about divorce. It's a command about what? Remarriage. If you do this, you can't remarry her. Now, the problem with the Pharisees of Jesus' day is they don't see these verses as if clauses. They see them as a command. And let me just say, even the King James is misleading here. I I love the King James, but I think a better translation where it says, um, let him write her a bill of divorcement. And we could say it like this, and he writes her. I think that's a... That's a better way to translate the essence of the Hebrew there. This is not a command. There's no command in here to write a bill of divorcement. So the question is, what then does Deuteronomy 24, 1-4 do? This passage simply recognizes divorce and regulates it. It recognizes that it's, it's happening, and it seeks to rein it in, it seeks to regulate it. Moses is trying to eliminate the practice of easy divorce and remarriage that evidently prevailed in the surrounding pagan culture and was influencing God's people. How and when did divorce begin? Nobody knows. It had been around a long time in Moses' day. It had already been around for a long time. Jay Adams writes this, its origins lie somewhere back in the dusty past of human history. We don't Know when it actually began. That's all hidden in history, but it was around in Moses' day. But here's the thing I want you to realize unlike marriage, divorce is not something that God created or instituted, it is a human invention. It was not instituted by God, but rather man. It's a human innovation. You can find no place in Scripture where God institutes divorce. Jesus' comments on divorce reinforce this conclusion. In, verse, in Matthew 19, 7 and 8, he said this, Moses allowed this, he suffered this because of the hardness of your heart. The only reason Moses even made this allowance or tried to regulate it is because of the hardness of your hearts. It was nothing that God instituted. And so Moses is seeking to regulate something that is already practiced and out of control. And so he makes a concession. This was a divine concession here to the sinfulness of man. Again, in verse number four, when he says he may not marry her again, that regulates divorce in at least two ways. First of all, Moses was trying to prohibit men from making a hasty decision. Look, if you divorce your wife, that's it. You can't get her back. And so you do, you should not make a hasty decision. He's also, by doing this, letting them know that divorce is not recognized as valid in God's eyes. Now, how do we know this? Because he gives the reason in verse 4, because she is defiled, that is, made unclean, made impure. And by the way, it's not her fault, it's his fault. He's the one bearing the sin. He's the one that caused this. He's the one that made her unclean. And so, that phrase there makes that very clear. And since there was no sufficient grounds for divorce, he is causing her to do something that is against what the Lord wanted and adultery. And again, that, she doesn't bear that. The idea here is he bears that. The man bears that. And so when Jesus comments on this in the New Testament, in Matthew 5, 32, Jesus says this, but I say unto you that whosoever shall put away his wife, saving for the cause of fornication, causes her to commit adultery. And whosoever shall marry her that is divorced, committeth adultery. That is Jesus' comment on Deuteronomy 24, 1 to 4. That is the meaning of defiled. And so in Moses' day, men were divorcing their wives for any reason they wanted. And again, they interpreted the word uncleanness as anything that they didn't like, anything that they didn't desire. And so we know that adultery was not what was meant by the word uncleanness. We know that that was not what it was talking about. You say, how do we know that? Well, again, in the Old Testament, If a spouse was unfaithful and committed adultery and you followed the letter of the law, what would happen to that guilty spouse? They would be put to death. They would be put to death. So we know that uncleanness is not talking about adultery. Uncleanness is any other little thing that a man doesn't like. Now, and so in the Old Testament, if a, a sinning spouse was put to death because of their sin, then the innocent spouse was free to marry again. Now, let me just say this, a word of compassion on this. Um, But in the Old Testament, the one reason God would give an allowance for divorce was for sexual sin. And why? Because in the Old Testament, when a person committed this sin, God didn't always follow the letter of the law. There were people that, that committed this sin in the Old Testament that didn't die. God didn't always follow the letter of the law. There were times when God showed mercy and he showed compassion on people. And by the way, thank God, God, God is a God of mercy and compassion. Sometimes the guilty were not stoned. Sometimes God in his grace allowed them to live. God doesn't always follow the letter of the law in his mercy and in his kindness. He doesn't always give us what we deserve. You know what that's called? It's called mercy. God is merciful. He is gracious. But there were people in the Old Testament that committed this sin where God showed mercy. I can think of one. How about a king named David? When David committed adultery with Bathsheba and God pronounced judgment on him, he said through Nathan, however, you will not die. However, you did wrong, David, and you're going to suffer for it, but you will not die. Solomon committed adultery. He didn't die. And so God doesn't always exact capital punishment. And there were times when, Moses reluctantly and indirectly, indirectly permitted a divorce. And a lot of times he did this on, on the behalf of the innocent party because, again, if the letter of the law were followed, this, the sinning partner would die and the innocent part, partner would be free. And so this, this was a, a concession. This was a divine concession to the sinfulness of man. Now, With all that in mind, go back to Matthew 19, because, again, Jesus is commenting on this issue in Matthew 19. So we saw the creation of marriage. Jesus spoke about that. And we see the confusion of divorce. Jesus spoke about this, that, you know, this is not God's plan from the beginning. This is not what God wanted. And Moses allowed this because of the hardness of your hearts. But I want you to see, number three, what I call the concession of Jesus And then it goes on to say here in verse 9, And I say unto you that whosoever shall put away his wife, except it be for fornication, and shall marry another, committeth adultery. And whosoever marrieth her which is put away, doth commit adultery. And so here Jesus makes it very clear. I call this the allowance. Jesus clearly states that divorce is permitted or allowed or, you know, conceded only under one cause. And notice Jesus makes an authoritative statement here. I say unto you, that's the voice of authority. He's the son of God. He's God. He can speak on this issue. So he says, I say unto you, I'm not quoting rabbis here. I'm not telling you what tradition says here. I'm giving you a divine authoritative statement. I say unto you, there's only one concession or allowance For divorce in that world where it was you can get a divorce for anything you wanted, Jesus said, No, there's only one concession, there's only one allowance here. And what is it if the the spouse is unfaithful, except for the cause of fornication? Now, I would just say this that fornication is a is a general word for a variety of sexual sins. This is present tense. This is something that is continually done. If there's, a, if there's a sinning spouse that is unrepentant, that will not get right with God, that will continue to live in this immoral way, then there is an allowance here that Jesus is giving. Now, let me just be quick to qualify and say, in a marriage relationship, whenever there is this kind of unfaithfulness The best thing that could ever happen in a situation like that is that there be forgiveness and there be reconciliation. And that's what you should strive for in every situation like this. And you say, well, man, you know, how bad can it get? You know, I have, you know, in the years that I have pastored, I have had to deal with this issue several times. I'll just give you one illustration. In another church I pastored, a very large church down south, a woman came to me one time for counsel, and she basically told me the story of her husband, who was a man who traveled a lot, how that she found out that he was living a double life. When he was home, he was, she was married to him, and they had a, what she thought was a good relationship, but he was away during the days of the week. He actually had a woman that he had bought a house for, that he lived with. They weren't married, and through her, he there was a child. And she found out about this, and she was completely devastated. When she came to me, she was just absolutely devastated. She didn't know what to do. And I asked her, can you please get your husband, bring him in. Well, i got to talk to both of you. we gotta, we got to try to reconcile this. And you say, man, how do you reconcile a situation like that? Well, let me just tell you that I'm going to give you all the details, but after months and months and months of counseling, I could tell you that they were able to reconcile their marriage and work it out. And and I, I can just tell you this that that was years ago. One Sunday morning here at Grace, they showed up here in church, here at Grace, and I saw them. And of course, they were smiling at me. And I, afterwards, pulled them aside and I said, "How's it going?" And they said, "Great. God has healed our marriage. God has brought it back together." And, we, and we're, we're grateful for what God has done. So I can tell you, friend, the best outcome to anything like this is for there to be forgiveness, for there to be repentance, for there to be reconciliation so that that relationship can continue on. Unfortunately, however, they don't all turn out like that. There are times when the one spouse will not repent. They will not do right before God. And the innocent spouse wants to continue on. They want to, but finally they realize that it's not going to happen. And in a case like that, Jesus says, if, you know, except for the cause of fornication, that allowance is made there for that situation. Now, there may be people that hear me say this and say, well, that's just not right. I don't think that's true in the Scripture. Well, let me just give you a little more something to think about. I think this is the right view. And uh, go, go back in the Old Testament, look in Jeremiah chapter 2, and I want to show you something here, just an illustration of, of this whole thing. Look in Jeremiah chapter 2, and I want you to see verse 1 and 2. Now, here God is speaking to his prophet Jeremiah, and God is portraying himself as a relation, having a relationship with Israel. Israel was God's bride. Look in chapter 2, verse 1, moreover, the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Go and cry in the ears of Jerusalem, saying, Thus saith the Lord, I remember thee, the kindness of thy youth, the love of thine espousals, when thou wentest after me in the wilderness in a land that was not sown. And here God is remembering the early days with Israel, the time when they were espoused together. We could say at Mount Sinai, Israel entered into a covenant relationship with God. That's exactly what a marriage is. It's a covenant relationship. And Israel made vows to God, and God made vows to Israel. And so this is pictured as a marriage. But here God begins to lament. Look in verse number four. Hear ye the word of the Lord, O house of Jacob, and all the fa- house of Israel. Thus saith the Lord, what iniquities have your fathers found in me, that they are gone far from me, and have walked after vanity, and have become vain? So now Israel is playing the harlot against God. Look in verse 20 of chapter 2. For of old time, I have broken thy yoke and burst thy bands, and thou sayest, I will not transgress. That is, they're saying, oh, we're not going to transgress. Yeah, we're going we're gonna to do right. When upon every high hill and under every green tree, thou wanderest playing the harlot. Yeah, God says, yeah, you tell me with your mouth that you're going to be faithful. But you go up on the, every... Uh, Every hill and every green tree, what was he talking about there? He's talking about the high places where the people of Israel would go and they would engage in gross idolatry. You, you can tell me all you want to that you're going to do right, but you're playing the harlot, God says. And then look in chapter 3 and, and look down at verse number 6. The Lord said unto me also in the days of Josiah the king, Hast thou seen that which backsliding Israel has done? She has gone up on every high mountain, under every green tree, and there hath played the harlot. And I said after she had done all these things, Turn thou unto me, but she returned not. Look down at verse number 8. And I saw when for all the causes whereby backsliding Israel committed adultery, I had put her away and given her a bill of divorce. So what did God finally say? I've had enough. I've given you enough opportunities to repent. You've, you said with your mouth that you would, but you continue in this way. And so God says, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going I'm to give you a bill of divorcement. I'm going to divorce you. We're, we're done. God got a divorce. And he writes a bill of divorcement. Now, again, we understand here this is a metaphor We understand that God is comparing adultery to idolatry. That's the idea there. That's the parallel. And some people would point that out and say, oh, you know, God didn't really get a divorce. This is a metaphor. But the question you would have to ask yourself is this uh, Would God portray Himself as doing something that is sinful and wrong? Would God portray Himself as getting a divorce if that was a sin, if that was wrong there? God is using this as an illustration because this was the allowance that God had talked about all the way back in the Old Testament and later Jesus affirms. And so that's just something to think about on all of this. God himself wrote a bill of divorcement for a spouse that was continually unfaithful and would not repent. They would not do right. And also another thing to think about in the Bible, Joseph was going to divorce Mary. Remember when Joseph found out she was with child? They were legally married because uh, the kiddushin stage of, of the Jewish wedding or Jewish marriage had taken place. The contract was signed. They were legally married. He was going to then come and get her and claim her as his bride. And before that happened, he found out that she was going to have a baby. And so that put him in an awkward position. He had several things he could do. He could publicly divorce her. He could publicly shame her, or he could privately write a bill of divorce, or he could go ahead and marry her and claim the child as his own. Joseph didn't know what to do, but the Bible says, in, and finally in Matthew 119, Joseph, her husband, being a just man, not willing to make a public example was minded to put her away privately. Put away is the official term for divorce. What was Joseph going to do? He was going to divorce her privately. And what does the Bible say about Joseph? Joseph was about to commit a big sin here. Joseph being a just man, being a just man. This was the option that he was going to choose. And so that's just, again, something to think about. Back to Matthew chapter 19. So Jesus basically then concludes here in verse 9 of chapter 19 that if anyone divorces for any other reason than this one allowance that I am giving, that it is illegitimate. It's wrong. And so so that's the allowance that Jesus gives there. Now... And by the way, uh, after this in, in Matthew 19, you don't see the Pharisees anymore. They kind of disappear off of the scene here. They kind of sneak quietly away, and uh, their little uh, test for Jesus didn't work. Now, later on, the disciples, when they are alone with Jesus, uh, they, they say this phrase, they say what they say in verse 10. They, they didn't say this with Jesus around all the others. But when they were later alone with Jesus What was their response to what Jesus had said? Verse number 10 of Matthew 19, his disciples said unto him, if the case of the man be so with his wife, it is not good to marry. Lord, if that's the case, man, we shouldn't even marry. Now, that statement to me shows how rampant divorce was, how easy it was back in that day. Lord, you know, if that's the case, it's better not even to marry. I mean, if we can't divorce her for anything we want, why get married? And that shows you how out of harmony the view was with God's original design for marriage and their, their wrong, erroneous view of divorce. That was, that, was, that was going around in that day. It was prominent in that day. And Jesus clarifies that whole situation to them. And so um, that's an interesting statement that uh, the disciples make there. Now, I would just add one more thing. To this, And I would just say that later on, the Apostle Paul, just number four, we don't have time to get into all of this, but there's also the contribution of Paul, where in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, the Apostle Paul is dealing with a question, and you might want to turn there. Give me just a few more minutes and we'll finish this up. In First Corinthians chapter 7, Paul is answering questions about marriage and divorce. And there were some in the church at Corinth who got saved and their spouse was an unbeliever. And some of them were were leaving their unbelieving spouse, thinking it was a spiritual and right thing to do. And Paul had to correct that. There were questions asked about that. And verse 10 of chapter 7, he said, Under the married I command, yet not I, but the Lord, let not the wife depart from her husband. What is Paul doing there? He is actually referring back to what Jesus taught about Divorce. I'm not, this is not from me. This is from the Lord. You do not leave your husband. In verse 11, but and if she depart, let her remain unmarried or be reconciled to her husband, and let not her husband put away his wife. So he's saying to some of these Corinthians who were acting super spiritual at that time, they had gotten saved, their spouse was still lost, you know, I'm just going to go ahead and divorce them and get on with my new life, how can we be together? And Paul said, no, don't you do that, don't you remember what the Lord Jesus said, the commandment of the Lord, you know, if to the women, if and by the way, some of them evidently had already done this, and he says to them, you either go back and be reconciled to your spouse, or you remain unmarried. If you've done this. And then he says this in verse number uh, 12. To the rest speak I, not the Lord. If any brother hath a wife that believeth not, and she be pleased to dwell with him, let him not put her away. And the woman which hath a husband that believeth not, and if he be pleased to dwell with her, let her not leave him. For the unbelieving husband is sanctified by the wife, and the unbelieving wife is sanctified by the husband. Elsewhere your children unclean, but now are they holy. So what is Paul saying there? And when he says, this is is not the Lord speaking here, this is me. And when Paul says that, he's not saying like some like to try to point out and say wrongly that, oh, well, you know, he's separating what Jesus said from what he said. You know what, Jesus had, had more authority than what he said. This is not the Lord speaking. This is just me, Paul, giving my opinion. No. Paul is saying, I am adding another condition here. And and Paul's not saying he doesn't have authority. He's an apostle. He speaks with authority as an apostle. It's on the same authoritative level as what the Lord Jesus said. He's only simply saying, this is not what Jesus taught, but here is what I'm adding to this whole idea here. If a believer is married to an unbeliever and that unbeliever wants to stay in that relationship, you stay with them because when you do, you bring Christ into that house and you sanctify that home. It only takes one Christian to make a Christian home. You bring Jesus into that house and there's a sense in which they are sanctified. Now that word sanctified there, obviously it doesn't mean justified. This is not another way to be saved. This is simply saying that there's a sense in which that whole household is now set aside because of that one believer that has brought Christ into that home. There's a sense in which they have something special going on in there now. And there's a sense in which the children then become holy. And again, that's not talking about automatic salvation. It's just saying that now they have a wonderful opportunity to be introduced to the things of God and the things of Christ if an unbeliever wants to stay, you stay in that relationship. You bring Christ there because who knows my, what might happen? Who knows? Look again down in verse number 14. For if the unbelieving husband is sanctified by the wife, the unbelieving wife is sanctified by the husband. us were your children unclean, but now are they holy. Look down in verse number 16. For what knowest thou, O wife, whether thou shalt save thy husband? Or how knowest thou, O man, whether thou shalt save thy wife? You, don't, you never know what God is doing. That one salvation brought into that home could lead to others coming to the Lord Jesus. And in fact, I would say that's God's plan there. He wants the others to come to Jesus. He wants others to know the Lord Jesus. I'm so grateful for the time my father got saved here at Grace. And he, and he, and he came home to a bunch of us unsaved family members. And he brought Christ into our house and we were all sanctified by what God had done in his heart, and now we are all blessed because of what God done in his heart, and that's God's plan. That's what God wants. So Paul says to them there, and don't, don't do that. Don't do that. However, look in verse 15. But if the unbeliever depart, let him depart. A brother or sister is not under bondage in such cases, but God has called us to peace. If there's a situation where an unbeliever just says, you know, I want to depart. I don't want to be a part of this. I don't want your Jesus. I don't want your God. I want out of this. And they initiate this departure. The word here is "chlorizo," and it does refer to divorce. Paul said if the unbeliever begins divorce proceedings and they just want out, then you have to let them go. Because God has not called us to war. He's called us to peace. For them to stay means constant warfare in the home, and God doesn't want you to live like that. And then Paul says, A brother or sister is not under bondage in such cases. What does Paul mean by that? I think he means a believer is not held accountable. They have not sinned. Well, I mean, what have they done wrong? All they did was they fell in love with Christ. They fell in love with the Lord Jesus. They're trying to walk in God's way. They don't want a divorce, they want to see them come to know Christ, but that unsaved spouse says no I'm out of here I'm done and I've, I've dealt with this in situations I've counseled a man who got saved and he loved his wife but she was an she was an orthodox Jew and she wanted nothing to do with him after his salvation she wanted out and nothing would convince her to stay in that relationship and it left him broken it left him wounded she divorced him Are you trying to tell me that for the rest of his life, he has to bear the burden of that, of being single, of being alone, after all he did was come to know Jesus Christ? I don't think so. I think that God, when he says here, a brother and sister is not under bondage in such cases, I mean, I think the bondage there that he's talking about is the bondage of bearing loneliness and being single for the rest of their life. They're free to go on with their life, and if God leads them to marry a Christian one day, there, there's no hindrance from that. That's what it means to be under, you're not under bondage. Where the divorce is, not, is permitted, remarriage is permitted. And so they're free to move on with their life. But let me just close by saying the thing I want you really to see here is that, again, if, if, if some of this has happened to you in the past and you've had a divorce in the past, and you came to salvation in Jesus Christ, that that is forgiven, that is cleansed. And if we live in a less than perfect world. We live in a world where it's very difficult, it's much less than ideal. And if any of these things have happened to you and you've had to suffer through a divorce, whatever the cause may be, what I want you to know is that you're not a second-class citizen in the kingdom of God. God's grace forgives, and you're able to move on, and you're able to... Walk in God's way and please the Lord. You can't unscramble an egg. All you can do is from this point on, do what is right in the sight of God. Do what is right before the Lord. Look in chapter 7 of 1 Corinthians. Look at verse 24. I'll close with this. Brethren, let every man wherein he is called, therein abide with God. What does Paul mean by that? The principle is, Wherever salvation finds you, whatever condition you're in when you're saved, now just go from there. Walk with God from there, whatever that condition might be. Let every every man wherein he is called, therein abide with God. And you can move on, and you can see the grace of God in your life, and you can see God do many, many mighty things. His grace will work. I remember uh, one time I was in Uganda, Africa, doing a pastor's conference, and I had a, a Q&A session with them. And during that session, a question came up about marital status of someone who practiced polygamy. Here's a man who has several wives. He came to know Jesus as his Savior. What is he going to do? Okay, pick one. I mean, what do you do with a situation like that? And that was a question that was posed to me and practices polygamy, and then they get saved, what do they do from there? We know God's ideal for marriage is one man, one woman for life. Should he divorce all of his wives but one? What if he had children with those other wives? I mean, he's responsible to take care of all of them. And so this question was posed to me, and I simply quoted 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 24. Brethren, Let every man wherein he is called therein abide with God. You know what he needs to do? This is how salvation found him. This is the situation he was in when he got saved. Now what he needs to do is he needs to be a good husband to his wives. And he needs to be a good father to his children. That's where salvation found him. And that's what he needs to continue on. But he also needs to understand God's ideal for marriage, and that's what he needs to preach. That's what he needs to teach his children. You see, well, that's a less than I, yeah, I know. Yeah, I know. What is your solution? Let them pick one? Is that your answer to it? I don't think so. If I'd have said that, I would not have gotten out of there alive. anyway, may God help us to understand his word. Let's bow together for prayer. Father, we, with all our heart, Lord, we just want to honor you. We want to walk in your ways. We want to please you. And, Lord, we are a broken people. Lord, we're a sinful people. And all we can boast about is your mercy and your grace, and how your mercy redeems us and forgives us, and how your grace restores us. Where would we be without that? Father, I just pray for these your precious sheep, that they would understand your word, and that Lord, they would walk according to it, and that Lord, they would walk close to you, and that their their homes, their their families would be blessed. Lord, we, we know that as broken people, your grace restores us. We know that sometimes it's not ideal according to what you want, but yet, Lord, you don't throw us out. You, even through the brokenness of our, our life, you work mightily. In fact, Lord, it's through that brokenness that your grace can shine forth all the more. For where sin abounded, grace did much more abound. And so, Father, we thank you for that. Lord, give us understanding and help us to walk in your way. Help us to encourage one another to love our families with all our, all our heart the way we should, to love you, Lord, with all our heart, to be all that you called us to be so that we can be a light in a, in a, in a dark world. And we pray in Jesus' wonderful name. Amen.